Hello and welcome to the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Greg Sattler. And I'm Yiming Ha. So today's topic is on the Mongol invasions. And a lot of people know about the Mongol Empire in world history. It expanded from China to Hungary, to Persia, to Russia. Yet very few people know about the particular details of the Mongol invasions of China, and in particular, the, the Southern Song Empire in China. The topic is covered fairly well in Chinese language scholarship, but in English language scholarship, there is not as much information to go about. So we're just going to go into some of the details about how this played out. So let's start off with a broad overview of the invasion itself. Was this a fairly quick process or was it a gradual process? Yeah, it was kind of both. So it was a gradual process in that the war lasted almost five decades. But once the Mongols under Kublai broke through the Song defenses, the campaign ended relatively quickly as the Song court simply surrendered. So as early as 1227, Mongol forces under Chinggis Khan had skirmished with the Song troops. Then in 1230-1231, the Mongols and Song forces engaged in another major battle. But at this time, the Mongols were primarily focused on attacking the Jurchenjin, and their attacks on the Song were mainly about going through Song territory to attack the Jin. Then in 1233, the Song court allied with the Mongols to defeat the Jin, but the alliance quickly fell apart as the Mongols then began attacking Song positions and pushing the Song out of their newly conquered territories in northern China. I think the campaign against the southern Song can be roughly divided into four phases. The first phase, lasting between 1235 and 1248, under Ogodai Khan and his son and successor Gu Yug, was fought mainly in Sichuan and in central China, so in today's Hubei region. The Mongols weren't all that successful, so they would capture some cities and territories, but very quickly the Song court would recover some of them. But they were able to take control of the city of Chengdu and establish a foothold in Sichuan. The second phase of the campaign was prosecuted under Mongka, and this lasted from 1251 to 1260. In 1252, Mongka ordered his younger brother Kublai to lead a campaign against the Kingdom of Dali, based in what is today Yunnan and Guizhou, with the hope of capturing the territory and opening another front against the southern Song from the southwest. And this Kublai managed to accomplish by 1254, so Yunnan and Guizhou was incorporated into the Mongol Empire. Then in 1258, Mongka himself ordered a massive three-pronged campaign against the southern Song that he led in person. So Mongka himself led the main army to attack Sichuan. The Mongol general Uriyankadai, who was the son of the great conqueror of Russia, Subutai, would attack from Yunnan. And a Mongol prince by the name of Tagachar would attack the strategic city of Xiangyang, located in Hubei province. Despite some minor victories, the campaign was also a failure. Tagachar was unable to conquer Xiangyang and retreated which forced Mongka to replace him with Kublai. Mongka himself died while laying siege to the fortress of Diaoyu in Sichuan. Popular legend claims he died as a result of projectile fire from the fortress, but official Chinese and Persian sources both state that he died of illness, most likely of dysentery or cholera. Kublai was a bit more successful in his theater. He shifted attention from Xiangyang to Ezhou, which is the modern-day city of Wuhan, and was laying siege to the city but ultimately withdrew to take part in the civil war against his younger brother, Eric Boka. So this leads us to the third phase, which was fought under Kublai between 1267 and 1276. 
Most of it was spent besieging the city of Xiangyang. But after Xiangyang fell in 1273, the road to the Song capital at Lin'an or Hangzhou was essentially open. After a few battles on the Yangtze River and a last-ditch attempt to negotiate a peace, the Song court capitulated in early 1276. Now, the fourth and final phase lasted from 1276 to 1279, and this was mainly about mopping up southern Song remnants still resisting in the south. So, in places like Guangdong and Guangxi. And pursuing the Rump Song court that was still trying to rally resistance. This campaign ended in 1279 when the Song resistance was finally put down and the Yang Song emperor drowned to death. Wow, 50 years—that's a really long time. I mean, when you think of Mongol invasions, you know, as a layman on the topic, you think that they just come in quick, they conquer, they go, and wherever they are, it becomes a part of their empire right away. But 50 years. I'm I'm guessing that there were pauses in between warfare. It wasn't constant warfare all throughout. A few years would go by between battles. Was that the case? Yeah. So there were definitely pauses between the phases. So, for example, Kublai became emperor in 1260, but it wasn't until 1268 that he launched his invasion of the Southern Song. So in between that, Kublai was fighting the civil war against his brother. He was state building, and he was also building his new capitals. But it was not totally peaceful, and there were small skirmishes. So, for example, Kublai retreated from Urzhou in 1259 to take part in the civil war. He actually signed a peace treaty with the Southern Song. But as soon as he left, the Song court went back on their word and recaptured some lost territory. Then, in 1262, one of the Han Chinese warlords who served the Mongols, a man named Li Tan, rebelled in Shandong and defected to the Southern Song. And so the Song court then sent naval forces to help him, forcing the Yuan navy to fight back the Song. So there was still some conflict, and we also have to consider the time and energy that Kublai put into preparing the campaign. So, for example, in preparing for the 1268 invasion, he pretty much spent the entire year of 1267 gathering supplies and training troops, and even before then, he was building ships and、uh, recruiting men. So there's a lot of preparation. Going on as well, yeah. So there's a lot to consider, I suppose. It's not just people fighting, but there's logistics, there's taxation, organization of all sorts. It's it seems like it was a very complicated process. Yes, definitely. Then, what do you think was the major turning point in which the Mongol forces had a decisive advantage over the Song? Definitely the capture of Xiangyang in 1273. So Xiangyang and her sister city Fancheng were located along opposite banks of the Han River, which is a tributary of the Yangtze River, and guarded the lower Yangtze River basin where the Song capital of Lin'an was located. They were linked by a pontoon bridge that allowed them to mutually reinforce each other, making them difficult to attack. And the Song navy could always resupply them via the river. But seizure of these two cities, however, would give the Mongols a springboard from which they can strike into the southern Song heartland without the need to overcome strong Song defenses in the Huai River region and along the Yangtze River, where the Song concentrated their most elite forces. And indeed, we find that after the Mongols conquered Xiangyang, after about five years of siege, the Mongols progressed relatively quickly and within three years had secured the surrender of the Song capital and court. Yeah, these battles sound quite fascinating, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about them in detail. Maybe in terms of strategy, tactics, numbers, anything to kind of help us imagine, you know, how how they took place, how they were won, and so on. 
Yeah, so there were many battles, of course, throughout this long war, but I'll just focus on two of the major ones, the most significant ones. Uh, the first is the Siege of Xiangyang from 1268 to 1273, and then the subsequent Battle of Ezhou in 1274. So Xiangyang, as I described, was a major stronghold of the Song, and I keep mentioning Xiangyang because it really was very important to the Song. And Kublai's strategy essentially was to take Xiangyang and use it as a base to attack the Song heartland downstream. This strategy was actually provided to him by a southern Song defector named Liu Zheng. And taking a leaf out of Sun Tzu's book, Liu Zheng decided that instead of attacking the cities directly, he would instead siege them. The Mongols therefore constructed an extensive network of siege fortifications and some 40 castles of various sizes around Xiangyang and Fancheng to completely cut off the cities from land reinforcements. At the same time, the Mongols began the construction of a navy to counter the Song naval advantage and built fortifications along the riverbanks to attack Song supply ships. The Mongol forces also dumped logs into the Han River and constructed metal chains to block Song ships from entering the besieged cities. According to the Yuan Shi, the history of the Yuan, Kublai mobilized tens of thousands of Chinese, Jurchens, and Korean workers and built 5,000 warships for the campaign and trained a naval force of 70,000 men. This number is possibly exaggerated, and, and some scholars suggest a more believable number of 500 warships. Now, this campaign is particularly interesting because the Mongol army never attacked Xiangyang and Fancheng directly. They instead stayed behind their fortified defensive lines to lay siege and to fight back sorties made by Song defenders. So Mongol troops responded to these sorties with arrows, ballista fire, and even primitive gunpowder weapons. Their plan seemed to be simply siege and starve the defenders into submission, but I think even they were surprised by the defenders' tenacity and perseverance, and the siege lasted five years, ending only in 1273. The Song court, on the other hand, devoted a ton of men and, and, and thousands of warships to rescue Xiangyang and Fancheng, but the Mongol fortifications and navy kept them at bay. The Mongol forces relied on ruses to lure Song troops into their fortified lines to defeat them and also made effective use of ambushes, and several counterattacks made by the defenders were also beaten back. Some Song reinforcements did manage to enter the city, but not enough to decisively swing the battle to the Song's favor. So the Mongol blockade was very effective, but it was also because the Song didn't send their most elite troops into battle, preferring to have them garrisoned elsewhere because the Mongols were also putting pressure on other parts of the Song, trying to keep Song troops away from Xiangyang. And it wasn't until 1273 that the Yuan forces finally managed to breach Fancheng's defenses, and then after Fancheng fell, the defenders in Xiangyang decided to surrender. And so immediately after Xiangyang's fall, the Yuan forces began to push down the Yangtze River. In preparation for this phase of the campaign, Kublai conscripted 100,000 men from northern China to replenish his army. And there are sources claiming that you know, the Mongols had a million men. Persian sources claim that Kublai prepared 300,000 Mongol troops and 800,000 Han Chinese troops. These are undoubtedly all exaggerations. Other historical materials mention 200,000 troops, which is probably more likely. So after Xiangyang, the Yuan forces arrived in Ezhou, which is Wuhan, in December of 1274. Now, Ezhou was defended by a Song general named Xia Gui, who was said to have had over 10,000 warships in the area. The Song also fortified cities in the region to prevent the Mongols from crossing the Yangtze River, as they did under Kublai in 1258. 
So this was a very strong fortress that the Song had built to prevent the Mongols from sailing downstream. And the commander of the Mongol forces, a Mongol general named Bayan, ordered his troops to begin attacking the various crossings near Hanyang and Hankou, both in modern-day Wuhan, on November 10th. And then on the night of December 13th, he secretly sent a division of Yuan troops across the Yangtze River downstream and launched a surprise attack on Ezhou. The Mongols then simultaneously attacked the major Song stronghold of Yang Luobao and the Song naval forces on the Yangtze River. And this surprise attack really paid off because when the Song forces in Yang Luobao saw that the Yuan forces had already crossed the Yangtze, they became demoralized and were very easily defeated. Xia Gui then panicked and fled the battle with 300 warships, leaving the rest of his army to either flee or surrender. And so with this victory, the Mongols essentially destroyed the last major Song defensive line, and this allowed them to directly threaten the capital. There was one last-ditch attempt to block the Mongols from advancing after the Battle of Ezhou, but the Mongols won that battle as well, and soon after that, the court surrendered. So in terms of casualties then, do historians have a fairly accurate understanding of how many troops were killed or injured on both sides? That's a very interesting question and one that's very hard to answer because we don't really have good sources on these numbers. I mean, you'll often see some numbers come up in historical materials, but I think historians are very careful not to take them at face value because very likely they're exaggerated. Yeah, that makes sense. We talked a little bit earlier about the size of these armies and there are, are, are various estimations. Some of the larger ones certainly seem somewhat difficult to conceive. Would you say that perhaps when they're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the armies, they're not just talking about the soldiers, but also the, the people supporting them, the people involved with logistics and such? Yeah, it's possible that these numbers also include men like porters or workers, you know, people conscripted for logistics. But again, we're not really sure because the sources aren't very specific. I think in some cases, these numbers are included in the number of armies, but in other cases, they're separate. So for example, in the uh, Han Dynasty, when the Han Emperor Wu Di launched the Battle of Mobei against the Xiongnu, that was a case where the number of troops and the number of you know, logistical support personnel were actually kept separate. So I think it, it has to be decided on a case-by-case basis. And even then, you know, we're not totally sure. And so what source or sources then would you say are the most reliable? I think in terms of the size of armies, there really aren't any reliable sources. And, and this is a problem not just for this war, right, the Mongol Song War, but throughout Chinese history, the number of troops in armies have always been very problematic to determine. You talked a little bit earlier also about some really interesting technology that people don't always associate with the 13th century. In particular, you were talking about gunpowder technology. So in regards to how this technology was utilized by both sides, can you give us a little bit more detail on what types of weapons they were using, how they were used, how effective they were? Yeah, sure. So as everyone probably knows, gunpowder was actually invented in China. Initially, it was used for fireworks and firecrackers, but very quickly it became adapted into a weapon. So the Song Dynasty was one of the dynasties where gunpowder weapons was really well developed. And we have military treatises that give us a glimpse into the type of weapons that were created. 
So we have, you know, rocket propelled arrows that they fired out of tubes or on carts. So kind of like a primitive form of, of rocket launchers. We had so-called fire lances, which were bamboo tubes that could shoot up projectiles through the use of gunpowder. We had various kinds of incendiary grenades that Song troops could lob at their enemies from on top of city walls. Uh, there was a primitive flamethrower. There were also mines, landmines, naval mines, and even rockets. And the Song used these weapons to great effect, but they were also adopted by the Song's enemies. So we also have cases where the Jurchens, when they were fighting the Mongols, they used gunpowder weapons as well. And the Mongols learned gunpowder from the Jurchens. But in terms of weapons that really made a huge impact on the campaign, I think that weapon has to be the counterweight trebuchet which did not exist in China at the time. So catapults in China prior to the introduction of the trebuchet were traction catapults. They did not use counterweights. So in order to break the stalemate at Xiangyang, Kublai turned to his nephew, the Ilkhan Abaka of Persia, for help. And Abaka dispatched two Muslim siege engineers. The records state that these two were named Ismail and Aladin to China, where they built heavy siege artillery such as Maganols and more importantly, the counterweight trebuchets for Kublai. In Persian sources, these war machines are called Manjanik, which comes from the ancient Greek word mechanicals. In Chinese sources, these are simply called Huihuipao or Muslim cannons. It was said that these trebuchets could hurl projectiles up to 300 kilograms or about 660 pounds over a distance of 500 meters or 1600 feet. So these were extremely powerful artillery pieces and using these artillery pieces, the Mongols were actually able to destroy portions of the wall at Fancheng, which allowed them to take control of the city. And then afterwards, they used it to destroy one of Xiangyang's watchtowers and this commander of Xiangyang, having witnessed how incredibly destructive these weapons were, decided that, you know, I, I have to surrender. There's no hope left of further resistance. So these gunpowder weapons, they weren't nearly as important as the counterweight trebuchet was then? Well, I wouldn't say they weren't important. It's just the counterweight trebuchet made more of a difference. So we have to remember that the Jurchens also used gunpowder on the Mongols and they still lost. And the Mongols adopted gunpowder from the Jurchens and used it against the Song. So, you know, all sides were using gunpowder. But the counterweight trebuchet kind of revolutionized siege defenses in Chinese history because the rammed earth walls, which were used at the time, could not withstand these heavy artillery pieces. So after Xiangyang, the Mongols built more of these trebuchets, and whenever they encountered resistance, they simply bombarded the city into submission. And so afterwards, you know, Chinese walls had to be made to account for these trebuchets. Okay. Yeah, the topic of gunpowder also fascinates me quite a lot, mainly because I know that Song China was importing a lot of sulfur from Japan at this time. And then that kind of factors into trade history. Yamauchi Shinji has written a book about this, and I would like to look into the topic some more myself. And I guess since we're going in that direction, maybe we can talk a little more about the naval warfare. So have you come across much information on how this took place and maybe which naval battles might have been the most decisive and which forces had the greater advantage? Yeah, so naval battle definitely played a huge role in the campaign. And I know when people think of the Mongols, they often imagine them as horse riding nomads, firing their arrows that, you know, destroys armies on land. 
But in China, the Mongols actually adopted naval warfare, and they were relatively successful. So in the beginning, the Song definitely had a naval advantage, but the Mongols quickly learned they used Song defectors, they used Koreans to build and train their own navy. And as I mentioned already, the Yuan Navy did battle with the Song Navy on the Han River outside of Xiangyang. But in order to pursue the Rub Song court after 1276, the Mongol fleet also took to the seas. And here they made heavy use of Chinese and Koreans to train essentially a blue water navy for them that's capable of operating not just on a river but also on the seas. And these defectors were very very important. So for example, after abandoning Lin'an, the Rumpsong Court fled to Quanzhou, which was a major trading city in Fujian. And Quanzhou was controlled by a man named Pu Shougeng. Now Pu Shougeng was a merchant. He was a Muslim descended from the Arab and Persian merchants who had come to China centuries earlier. He also served as the maritime intendant of foreign trade and was extremely wealthy, even possessing his own fleet of warships. Although he initially welcomed the Song court, Pu found them to be overly arrogant and very high-handed. They weren't so much asking for his support as they were demanding it. And so, in his anger, he turned to the Mongols. He subsequently massacred the Song imperial clansmen who were living in the city. He forced the Song court to flee to Guangzhou, and then he defected to the Yuan with his warships. And so, of course, Kublai was overjoyed to have Pu and his ships join his navy. In terms of the important battles, I think the final battle, the final showdown between the Song and the Yuan, the Battle of Yamen, was perhaps the most famous naval battle. So in mid 1278, the Song court took refuge on a small island off the Leizhou Peninsula in Guangdong, near the island of Hainan, and this place was called Yashan. There, they established a court and started setting up defensive fortifications. It was said that the Song court at this time numbered 200,000 men and had over a thousand ships, although most of these personnel were civilians. They were led by a man called Zhang Shijie, who was the supreme military commander and who was himself a defector from the Mongol Yuan. And Zhang turned down a suggestion to secure the mouth of the bay, fearing that his men might flee. So he had the Song ships tied together, and he placed the emperor's ship in the center of his fleet. This allowed the Yuan forces, led by two commanders named Zhang Hongfan and Li Heng, to enforce a blockade, and they attacked the Song positions on March 19th, 1279. They initially tried to use fire ships, a tactic that was very successfully used by the Eastern Wu against Cao Cao's forces at Red Cliffs during the Three Kingdoms. But the Song forces coated their ships in mud to prevent such a tactic. The Yuan commander Zhang Hongfan also did not want to employ catapults, as he feared doing so would break the chains of the Song ships and allow them to slip away. So unable to break through, Zhang Hongfan then pulled his ships back and ordered his troops to pretend to have a party, hoping that this ruse would get the Song to lower their guard. And it actually worked because Zhang Shijie decided to take the chance, take this opportunity to break through the blockade and escape. However, he was caught in a trap, and the Song navy was defeated. Wow, that's a really dramatic twist in the story of the collapse of the Song Empire. I think it's also quite interesting that you know if you look back on Chinese history in past dynasties, usually the fighting stops after a certain point. You know, when the capital is taken, when the imperial family is is slaughtered or is captured or concedes defeat. 
But in this instance, the fighting goes all the way to the very, very southern tip of the Song Empire in, into Hainan. So it's it's quite interesting to uh, to see how that played out. Yeah, so the Song decision to surrender was definitely not unanimous. Some of the Song officials wanted the court to flee south and continue resisting, but the young emperor's grandmother, who was serving as regent at the time, decided that all hope was lost and chose to surrender in exchange for Kublai sparing their lives. And Kublai did spare them and treated them very, very well, although he relocated them north to his capital where he could, you know, keep an eye on them. But before the capital capitulated in January of 1276, Song officials managed to smuggle the emperor's two younger brothers out of the city. So this group first fled to Wenzhou, where they joined with other resistance officials and learned of the surrender. Then they went to Fuzhou, where one of the boys was officially proclaimed emperor in 1276. This young emperor actually died off the coast of Hong Kong in January of 1278 and was replaced by his younger brother, who reigned until 1279. So after the fall of Lin'an, you have almost three years of further resistance in the south. I see. And who are some of the major heroes and figures of these battles. Yeah, so there were heroes and major figures on both sides, on the Mongol side and on the Song side. So on the Mongol Yuan side, you of course have Ba Yan, who was the commander of the forces that overcame the Southern Song. And he became Kublai's most trusted military commander and the most famous general in the Mongol Yuan, the great conqueror of the Southern Song. And his renown was such that after Kublai died and during the enthronement of Kublai's successor, who was his grandson, Timur, it was said that Ba Yan stood on the steps of the palace with his sword in hand, reading out Kublai's edict, listing why Timur should succeed. And nobody dared to say no. Everybody was just completely terrified. They knelt down and, and accepted the edict. You also have Lu Wenhuan, the defender of Xiangyang, who held out against all odds for five long years. And after he surrendered, he defected to the Mongols and began working for Kublai and rendered a lot of service. For the Song, I think the most famous hero would be Wen Tianxiang. He was a loyalist official, someone in the resistance who fought until the very end. After he was captured while defending Guangdong against the Mongols, he refused all offers to surrender to the Yuan, and he suffered in prison for four years before he was executed. Today, he is often looked up to as a symbol of loyalty. You also have Lu Wenxiu, the Song official who carried the boy emperor in his arms and committed suicide with him by jumping into the ocean after the Song lost the Battle of Yamen. Then there was Zhang Shijie, the Song general who commanded the Song forces at Yamen. His fleet actually managed to break out of the blockade, and he was on his way to Southeast Asia to set up a resistance when he was caught in a typhoon and killed. So, in fact, a lot of these resistance figures are looked up to today as symbols of loyalty. But what about when we compare this fighting and this resistance against Mongolians to other parts of the world? Do you think there are any similarities or differences between what happened in China and what happened elsewhere? I think there definitely were similarities and differences. So... It was similar to other places in that the Mongols made heavy use of local troops. And this was something that they did since the time of Chinggis, because the Mongols had always lacked manpower. There weren't a whole lot of them. And so whenever they went to a new place to conquer, they always tried very hard through a variety of methods to get the local ruler to surrender or submit. And once the local ruler does surrender or submit, he was required to supply troops 
to fight for the Mongols. So we see that in China as well, right? Kublai made heavy use of Han Chinese troops to fight the Southern Song, particularly because, and it's not just because the Mongols lack manpower, it's also because they weren't used to the climate of the South, which tended to be very wet. So they hated the wet and humid climate. The topography of the South, right, which is very watery and mountainous, nullified their cavalry advantage. So they had to use these local troops to fight. The Mongols also made heavy use of defectors. So the commander of Xiangyang, a man by the name of Lu Wenhuan, he actually surrendered to Kublai and defected after Xiangyang fell. And he convinced many of his Southern Song colleagues to surrender. In fact, Xia Gui, the man who defended Ezhou and then fled, he actually surrendered later on as well, surrendered with his troops and his territory to the Mongols. The Mongols would always try to urge settlements to surrender instead of attacking them. This was a tactic that they used throughout the world. And of course, they were very pragmatic in adopting new weapons and tactics, as we've seen with you know, naval warfare and gunpowder weapons. I think the situation in China was different, however, because the Mongols were facing a very strong and wealthy opponent who had a home advantage. So again, the terrain and the climate was not at all conducive for Mongols. And they had to face off against a foe who possessed advanced gunpowder weapons and also a navy. In fact, I think the Song was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful adversaries the Mongols ever had to face. And the Song was definitely among the states that put up the longest amount of resistance against the Mongols. So that is where I feel it's not similar to other places in the world. In terms of strategy and organization, I'm, I'm sure the, the Mongols learned a lot from that process over those 50 years. So in regard to their invasions of other areas, perhaps Japan or Southeast Asia or further to the West in Eurasia, what lessons do you think they learned and how did they apply those lessons? So I think one of the lessons they learned was adopting gunpowder weapons and using them to great effect. And we see this in their invasion of Japan. So. At that time, Japanese samurai typically fought one-on-one. -on -one. So they would shout out their name and the name of their lord, and then they would engage in single combat. But the Mongols fought in formation. They were organized using horns and flags. And so when these poor samurai went to charge at the Mongols expecting single combat, they were shot at with arrows. They were bombarded and, and, and pelted with grenades and incendiary bombs. And so we see the Mongols adopting a lot of what they learned against the Japanese. And they also became acquainted with naval warfare, as I've mentioned. So the Mongols launched naval invasions, not only of Japan, but they also launched a naval invasion of Vietnam and later a naval invasion of Java in Indonesia. But I think most importantly, they learned that it was very beneficial to leave southern China alone. And this was in stark contrast to their conquest of northern China, which was very bloody. It completely devastated the region. The majority of the cities and settlements in southern China were left alone. A lot of the southern Song officials were kept in place, and the Yuan kept many Song policies. They retained many Song policies. And this, I think, really had a huge role to play in cementing southern China's role as an economic engine going into the Ming and Qing dynasties. Because if you were just an average person living in a settlement in southern China, the fall of the Song and the rise of the Yuan doesn't feel all that drastic or different because a lot of the Song policies were still in place. Yeah, because even beginning in the Song dynasty, and I think going as far back as, as to the last half of the Tang dynasty, the south of China was the economic heartland. So that was invaluable. And it seems like it was a smart decision for the 
Mongolians to preserve that and maintain that system after they conquered the region. Going back to Japan, I do find it extremely interesting that there are pieces of art that have been preserved of these battles, and they're really fascinating. If anyone's interested, please do a Google search of this artwork. You see samurai fighting with Mongol warriors, and there are even fragments of grenades that have been preserved in the, I believe it's the Kyushu National Museum. So there's a lot of material evidence and art that you can also pursue if you are interested in this subject. Now, for one final question, this kind of departs a little from your typical history. This kind of goes into the realm of what if, but I'm curious, was there ever a moment when Song forces had an opportunity to really decisively defeat the Mongols and, and turn the tide of the invasions? That is kind of hard to say because certainly both the Yuan and the Song were facing increasing pressure from years of warfare. The Yuan was suffering from inflation because they were printing enormous amounts of paper money to pay for the campaign. The Song was suffering from even worse inflation for much of the same reasons. We also have to realize that Kublai's rule in northern China was definitely not unchallenged, and he faced challenges and resistance from more conservative elements of the Mongol nobility, the Mongol imperial family, both in the northeast and in the northwest. So he had to you know, devote military attention to these regions as well. And at the same time, he was also attempting to subjugate Japan. So Kublai was facing a lot of other military challenges. On the other hand, the Song court was simply trying to survive. So the Song had initially allied with the Mongols with the hopes of recovering their lost northern territories, kind of for the same reasons they allied with the Jurchens against the Khitan Liao. But like the last time, this alliance didn't work out in the way that the Song court wanted it to. And I think by that point, the Song was simply trying to prevent the Mongols from advancing any further. Whatever irredentist notions they had about recovering lost northern territory was gone. And we see this because time and time again, the Song Corps would always try to negotiate a peace with the Mongols. You know, let's set the border along the Yangtze River and I'll pay you tribute and you should just go away. And they try this and it doesn't work because the Mongols would just reject them. But I think perhaps had the Song managed to hold on to Xiangyang, something akin to the division of China we saw with the Song and Jin might have played out here as well. It might not have decisively turned the tide of the war, but it could have preserved the Song for a bit longer. But again, this is all conjecture. This is a counterfactual question, and we really don't know what would have happened. I see. Well, thank you so much, Yiming. That was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that was my pleasure. So that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening.